Well, good morning, New Hope. Today I'll be reading from uh, the book of Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on the holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally and or will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stuart. What a beautiful promise out of Isaiah. Well, I bet if you weren't in the mood for Christmas yesterday, you might be now, right? Coming in this swirling snow is so beautiful this morning, and welcome to all of you online, although I don't know, we're sitting here and you're probably home with your hot cocoa. (laughs) Welcome anyway. No, we're really glad that you've joined us, and we're glad you all joined us in person Well, as Mike said earlier, today we celebrate the second Sunday of Advent. John mentioned last week that the church calendar exists to tell the story of our God. The Israelites in the Old Testament had something very similar to a church calendar. They celebrated certain feast days. They had special days that were marked. They built altars so that they themselves and every generation after them would never forget the things that God had done in their lives and in the lives of their people. These feast days and special days and the church calendar that we have today serve not only as reminders of the past, but they are bridges of our faith into our future. They serve as guideposts into the future. Corey Tin Boom, Holocaust survivor, said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And one of the ways that we know God is by remembering all that he has done in our lives and in the lives of his people. What God has done for us through Jesus Christ is marked with the church calendar of today, and every year it begins with Advent. It begins with anticipation of a teenage girl named Mary and her cousin 
Elizabeth. God was about to enter their story and the story of their people in a spectacular way once again. Angels, as you probably already know, are God's messengers. And they seem to have a bit of a ranking in Scripture. So when God had this special announcement, Clarence from A Wonderful Life was not the angel that he chose. <laughs> Lovable though Clarence is, and if you haven't watched Wonderful Life, please do. It'll make you better people and uh, increase just your sense of how important you are in this world. I love that movie. But Clarence didn't get chosen for this particular assignment. God chose instead Gabriel, the very angel who stands in the presence of God every day. And he sent him to Mary with this announcement. Greetings, favored one. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Amen. 400 years prior to this moment, God had been fairly quiet. There were no prophetic words, no visions, no great awakenings. People of faith continued to be faithful, though. They prayed, they worshiped, they met in synagogue, they continued to hope for the promised Messiah, the one who was promised that would be the restorer of Israel and the redeemer of her people. At times, though, I'm sure that they wondered over those 400 years, is God still writing this story? Is God still in this story? Last Sunday, John gave kind of this overarching big plot of scripture, God's story, really, which was indeed to save a broken world through trees. If you missed it, John would say, it's not what you think. And if you missed it, I would say, please go listen to it. You can listen to all the Advent messages on our website. The divine human saga, which is told throughout scripture, is both beautiful and terrible. It contains destruction and redemption, wrath and mercy, lament and joy. Today we're gonna to come down from that 30,000 foot view of all of it that John gave us last week, and we're gonna come down to level ground. We're going to drudge a bit through the mud and the muck of some of the story where people made mistakes, chose things that would bring destructive forces into play, and see how God nevertheless keeps writing the redemptive story. Our primary text for this Advent series is from the book of Isaiah. So I thought I'd give you a little bit of an overview of what's going on in that book. Isaiah is called the fifth gospel because it has so much of Jesus in it. It is the most chosen Old Testament book to quote during the season of Advent and Christmas for good reason. Isaiah is, uh, by the scholars, if you care at all, broken into really two books. 
Scholars say there's book one, which covers chapter one through 39. Something cataclysmic happens at that moment. And then there's a second book from 40 through 66. It is those first 39 chapters that pretty much tell kind of the mud and the muck of God's people. If you're just here today visiting or you're exploring the Christian faith or you don't know a lot about God's word yet, let me just kind of clarify the fact that when we talk about Israel, we're not talking about the nation of Israel today. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant, a promise with a man named Abraham. And he told him that he, out of him and his wife Sarah, would come a great nation with one of the biggest purposes ever given on the earth. He said that their nation would be the ones to give witness to all other nations of the greatness and the mercy and the love of Yahweh, of God. Israel as a people of faith, ah, representative of all of us at times, at times squandered that precious covenant, that precious purpose they had been given and went in instead their own way. As the book of Isaiah opens, Israel is deep into rebellion. They have delved into all kinds of idolatry and their actions were that of greed. They were unjust and oppressive toward the poor and the vulnerable. And God, who is long-suffering, God who is patient beyond what we can ever exercise in our own life, and that's really what long-suffering is. It just means a patience that goes on and on and on and on. And that was God. And in this moment, God's patience was, was coming to an end with his people. For he had given plenty of opportunities to change their ways, but they, they were not. Isaiah is a person. He's what we call a prophet, and he is sent to the people of Israel, particularly the corrupt leaders, to let them know that their rebellion would come at great cost. What I want us to note this morning, though, is that Isaiah doesn't take the message forward until he sees not only his nation's rebellion, but his own personal rebellion. In Isaiah chapter 6, that famous worship scene, when he sees God high and lifted up, he sees God as God is, and in turn, he sees himself as he is, and he cries out, it's over, I'm doomed, I'm a person of unclean lips, and I live among a nation of unclean lips. That's what happens in true worship. It's why we need to carve out time for worship, that we might see God as he is and that we might see ourselves as we are. Sometimes today, we fixate on our nation's rebellion. We fixate on the grave injustices and immoral practices of our nation. There's, just, there's a lot of shouting about it on talk radio, on social media, about all that is wrong. But like Isaiah, the church would do well before we take the message forward to stop and, and be seen of God, 
to confess our own sin before we take the message further. Each Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, yes, I know it's early, during this season of Advent on Wednesdays, we are meeting here, right out here in the foyer, in the lobby area for prayer. We met this last week, and it was a meaningful moment for me. I hope it was for all that were there. But somebody, and I think it was John, prayed over us that we would come to see our own idols today, that we would recognize the strongholds in our lives, idols that we bow down to that create a wedge between us and the God who wants to pour life into us and through us. A podcast that some of us listened to this last week said something I thought was really sobering. There was a lot of information in that hour podcast that I've heard before that you've heard about, you know, the oh, kind of the, the negative side effects of all our screen time. But when he said this, he, it stopped me for a moment. He said that we are discipled by whom and what we give our time to. If the church or our own pursuit of God's word only gets an hour or two of our time, and we truly do, as research says, spend 40 hours in front of screens, whether it's our phone or the TV or Netflix or a shopping channel or games, who have we given permission to disciple us? Behind those screens are big corporations. And they are big corporations that have hired data researchers, brain scientists, psychologists, all for the purpose to influence how we think, how we feel, what keeps us agitated. Because the one thing they want from us, which is not our betterment, the one thing they want from us, which is not the betterment of our people, the one thing they want from us is to get us to buy their stuff. Ugh. Mike mentioned earlier that Americans spend, four, spend billions of dollars at Christmas, and our screens keep telling us to, right? They're influencing us. What we think we need, what's going to solve our problems, what's going to reignite our relationships. Let's don't give big corporations with the desire to sell, sell, sell 40 hours to disciple us. Let's balance it out. Let's bring it into, into a place where we are letting Jesus Christ disciple us. So when Isaiah owns his stuff, when he sees himself as he truly is, he thinks he's a dead man. He thinks this is it. It's over. God's going to kill me on the spot. But my friends, that's not what happens. Every genuine confession we see throughout all of Scripture, every time, is met with forgiveness and new purpose. Forgiveness and new purpose. Paul's confession Forgiveness and new purpose. Paul, take the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter's true-hearted confession, forgiveness and new person purpose. Peter, feed my sheep. A seraphim 
a heavenly creature took a burning coal from this worship scene in Isaiah 6 and touches the lips of Isaiah. And when he does, he says, your guilt is now removed and your sins forgiven. When we get face to face with God, he provides the refiner's fire. We don't bring it. God brings it to refine our lives. And after that moment, God immediately asked the question, who should I send to take a message to my people? And Isaiah said, send me. Forgiveness and new purpose. When God is in the story, that's just how it flows. It would indeed prove to be a difficult assignment for Isaiah. Israel, as one commentator writes at this point, was past the point of no return. They were not going to confess, and God knew it. And every message that Isaiah brought, and he brought it over years and years, every message only served to harden the hearts a little bit more and a little bit more. That's a sobering thought. The more Isaiah preached, the more hardened their hearts became. Well, the rebellion culminates in chapter 39 when that there's, it's just the finale of an era. Israel, who had been so great at one time, was now going to fall to Babylon. And Babylon was just one of this kind of the superpowers of the day that Israel just kept trying to court. They wanted to be like them. They wanted to be in alliance with them. And then Isaiah kept warning them, don't do it. Don't do it. They will betray you. And sure enough, that's what happened. Babylon, Babylonians came in, conquered Israel, robbed them of their possessions, and carted them off to servitude and exile. Author and speaker Sky Jathani, who is someone that John interviewed for us a couple of years ago, wrote recently that if we minimize God's anger, God's wrath, then we minimize his mercy. If our sin is no big deal, and on so many levels I feel in some ways we've just taken it all, taken all of the power of or the seriousness out of sin today. If we take that away, God's mercy has no purpose. It means nothing. Let it be said that God is absolutely slow to anger, very slow to anger. Scripture teaches that of our God over and over throughout the whole story, that he is a God of compassion, a God of love, a God of forgiveness, but he is also a God who does get angry. Angry when we sell ourselves to idols, believing that they will be our security, they will be our success, they will be our joy, when God knows it's only a path toward our destruction. Angry when humans choose self above community in ways that strip people of dignity, opportunities, and even the basic necessities of life. God gets angry. God shows up in our human saga with the greatest of patience, far beyond what you and I could ever exercise. He shows up with the best leadership any of us could ever experience. He shows up with the best parenting skills that any of us could ever wish for. He shows up like a good shepherd that he is 
And that means he shows up in our story both with anger and with mercy. God is in, down in the mud and the muck of our story, every bit as much as he is in a story that is up on the mountaintop. And it's in the mud and the muck, if we will confess it, if we will see it, that he will confront us, that he will correct us, that he will teach us, and that he will lead us out of that mud and that muck if we let him. I mentioned uh, Isaiah has two books. And the first book is full of warning and destruction. Book two is greater on the message of hope and comfort. But even then, things are going to fall apart again. That's just kind of another story. But what I want you to know in, in this first book, we find incredible hope and promise woven into the fabric of this story. In the first 11 chapters, actually, um, Mike is the one who kind of uh, scheduled out this particular series, and he asked that we all speak out of Isaiah, and he gave me Isaiah 11. And so I began to read those first 11 chapters. I thought, well, I don't know if I have time to plow through 66 chapters over and over again, but what if I focus just on these first 11 chapters? And here's the part that kind of blew me away, that it, it does. It opens up, and it's in the middle of Israel writing a pretty ugly story. And yet in chapters 2, 4, 7, 9, and 11, you'll read this bright, bold thread of God's promise to redeem, to restore, and to make everything well. Israel walked a story, they walked a path that destroyed them as a nation. But God in his infinite mercy was intent on writing a different ending to that story. Praise God, right? Yeah. Stuart read uh, the promise of chapter 11. It is such beautiful imagery that creates a longing in our hearts for life as we know it's supposed to be. A life without violence. The wolf and the lamb living together. The calf is safe with a lion and a little child can play safely at the feet, uh, at the den of poisonous snakes. That's the kind of place that God promises to develop and to bring about. And on that holy mountain, God says the only fear that's going to exist is that of holy reverence as we enjoy being in the presence of his goodness. For those of us living in pretty much comfort today, that's kind of a nice image, right? The lion and the lamb. You've probably seen it on a Hallmark card that you might send out at Christmas. It's one of my favorite images. It might hang in your house as a picture, and it's a nice story. But think about what it means, what that passage would mean to refugees fleeing from the Ukraine or from Syria, from Venezuela. Think about what that story might mean to women who are afraid living in Afghanistan or closer to home. What message, what's the impact for those who live in communities who have a high incidence of violent and gun death? in their communities. It's a whole different impact to consider when you're surrounded by violence, 
to know that one day there is coming a day where there will be none, and I will be safe. Israel was about to head into that similar situation. They would be conquered, ripped from their homeland, like the refugees of today, and carted to another place. And the promises that are given all throughout this 39 chapters, and in 2, 4, 7, 9, and 11, these early chapters would be the promises that would sustain them because they would know this is not going to be the end of our story. The difficult thing about reading the prophets is that the stories take place in real history. They're real time. He's working. Isaiah is talking to real kings in real kingdoms. So we can't always assume that everything in Isaiah points immediately to Christ. Some of it points to the earthly things that will happen during their time. It's only as historians and theologians look back in history can they decipher which is which, which describe the times that they were living out and which describe the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's a painting, a famous painting by a Quaker pastor named Edward Hicks in the 1800s called The Peaceable Kingdom. And you can see it depicts these, this very same struggle. He paints the vision of wild animals and tame animals together in peace. Well, over to the side and in the background, you can see then that's supposed to be William Penn and company creating a treaty with Native Americans. And the question asked is, is that peaceable kingdom a realistic hope created through human efforts? Well, we know how that one went, right? And pretty much we know how it always goes. We are absolutely um, called to pray for peace, to work for peace, to do everything we can to maintain peace. And nations do, for times and periods throughout history, they find moments of peace. But inevitably, skirmishes begin, and so often over greed, and then full-blown war breaks out again. The promise we read in Isaiah goes beyond a prophetic word for the moment. And it talks about a new life, a new creation, brought about not by humanity, but brought about only by God through the person of Jesus Christ. This peaceable kingdom that is coming is a result of God's work, God's gift. It is not something that we will ever be able to bring about. But don't worry, God is in this story. The imagery in Isaiah 10, the previous chapter right before this one, is an ax chopping down trees and, and a land that has been burned out. It is to depict the fact that uh, Israel's glory days are over. They're done, gone in an agonizing finish. But after chapter 10, we walk into chapter 11, and in that very first verse, which starts with a stump, starts with a, a scene just like this one, colorless and bleak, something green begins to grow. When it all seems over and it all seems lost, if God is in the story, 
don't give up. There is always hope. A green shoot comes up from the stump, and it bears fruit. And the fruit that it bears is the person, is a person who will be the one who has been and will be. Remember, Advent is kind of, we wait for Christ's coming, and then we're in in the waiting period again, waiting for a second coming. He will be the one to enter in the peaceable kingdom. Neither Russia nor the United States or any other nation is ever going to be able to produce a utopia on our own. It will be a gift from God. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, when he stood before the synagogue for the very first time, he stood before them, he opened up the scroll to Isaiah, he began his ministry, he claimed his identity, and he spoke and said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Look again at Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Advent provides the opportunity for us to remember why. Now, why did Jesus come? Yeah? Was it so that we could give each other nice presents and have a beautiful decorated church? No. All that might be a nice touch, but Jesus came to do what we human beings could never do, to bring peace that we cannot maintain, to bring the peaceable kingdom. Part of Israel's sin stemmed from its obsession that there was going to be some leader, some nation, some powerful king that was going to be the answer to all their problems, all their longings, and they never were. That might just be a warning to us, just kind of a prep time a little bit before we step into the 2024 election season, okay? Don't put all your hopes there because they will be dashed. We know where to place our hopes. And I would like to say that I am nothing like Israel, but I can't. I can't. I fall into some of the same traps of thinking something else or somebody else is going to be the answer to my security, my needs, my longing. Something is going to make life okay. And I give into that temptation more often than I wish I did. I would say to all of us, whatever it is we are turning to in our society, in our culture, to satisfy the longings of our heart, to fix our problems, whether it be to substances or to governments or entertainment, whether we're turning to people's approval or advancement or multiplying our our retirement fund, may we know this morning as we look back, as we reestablish those guideposts for our faith into the future, that those things never satisfy for long. And so often, they lead us down a path that destroys. Like Israel, I have to come to the end of myself again and again, the end of striving out of fear, the end of arrogance, 
before I am hollowed out enough to open my hands and receive the gift of God through Jesus Christ. Here's our redemption. God never left Israel alone in their burned out story. And God will never leave us alone in our burned out stories. Amen. Jesus, upon whom the Spirit rested, has come. He has come and he will come again. And he guides our lives with wisdom and understanding. He brings his counsel to bear upon the times that we live in, and he strengthens us for the journey that we have yet to walk. When God let Israel know that they were going to walk through a really difficult time, as some of us in this room have and some of us will, he also side by side with that promised that there would come better days that he would be with them, and that the Messiah was still coming. We are changed people because Jesus came once, and we will be changed even more when Jesus comes again. In the closing, I want to just bring in one more wonderful image that we think about during the Advent season, and that is that a light has dawned in our darkness. I read this week, and I found it a astonishing that the human eye can only observe 0.0035% of the electromagnetic spectrum that is light. Isn't that amazing? Such a tiny amount. Now, we know that there are many other types of light, uh, gamma rays, radio, microwave, infrared, ultraviolet, x-ray that we don't see, yet we know that light produces so much good in our world and in our lives, enables all kinds of usage, we know they're there. So nearly all the light that exists is light we cannot actually see. I encourage us this Advent that in the darkest days of the year, when we light a candle, we will remember that there is infinitely more light that surrounds us than we can actually see. Jesus is at work in your story. Jesus is writing your story, and it has a good ending if you will trust him. Christ is the light of the world. He is the shoot that comes up out of the stump, and he brings new life and light to our story. So when God is in the story, and he is, there is always a new beginning. Pray with me. Our loving God, we thank you so much that we get to celebrate such a critical aspect of our faith, that over 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to walk among us because we couldn't get it right. Israel couldn't get it right. We can't get it right. And you gave us Jesus who got it right for us. So this morning, we pray that we will lean in, press in, that you might do a new work in our lives. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for new purpose that you have for every one of us when we confess and when we see you and when we are seen. So Lord, we pray that as the Advent season really begins the new year, might you show us new purpose for our lives 
in the coming days and months. In Jesus' name, amen.